And I'm going to have a stand, and we're going to read from Psalm 65 this morning. And while we're turning there, I want us to also pray. When I lead us in prayer, uh, I received the email from one of our missionaries who, uh, they've been in our church many times, Jim and Calwyn Humphreys. They minister in Myanmar, which was, uh, used to be known as Burma. She, uh, James is married to Calwyn. She's a Kachin person. Many of the Kachin are Christians, and they're actually in a strife with uh, the country that they're living in. And right now, there's a military threat, and they've surrounded one of the key Kachin cities, and they're trying to annihilate it. And actually, Kalwin is there. So we need to really pray today that God would, excuse me, intervene in that situation. So <clears throat> let's read Psalm 65, and then I'll pray. Praise await you, O God in Zion. To you our vows will be fulfilled. O you who hear prayer, to you all men will come. When we were overwhelmed by sins, you forgave our transgressions. Blessed are those you chose and bring near to live in your courts. We are filled with the good things of your house and of your holy temple. You answer us with awesome deeds of righteousness. O God, our Savior, the hope of all the ends of the earth and of the farthest seas, who formed the mountains by your power, having armed yourself with strength, who still the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves, and the tumult of the nations. Those living far away fear your wonders. Where morning dawns and evening fades, you call forth songs of joy. You care for the land and water it. You enrich it abundantly. The streams of God are filled with water to provide the people with grain. For so you have ordained it. You drench its furrows and level its ridges. You soften it with showers and bless its crops. You crown the year with your bounty and your carts overflow with abundance. The grasslands of the desert overflow. The hills are clothed with gladness. The meadows are covered with flocks, and the valleys are mantled with grain. They shout for joy and sing. And Lord, we thank you today. Yes, we do thank you that even in the midst of trial and difficulty and even life-challenging situations, Lord, you are sovereign. Lord, we read in your word here that you, Father, still the surging and roaring of the seas and the roaring of the waves. Lord, you are the one who settles the turmoil of nations, O God, because you are in control. And now we cry out on behalf of these beautiful people. Many of them are your servants, O God, who are in a conflict and their lives are in jeopardy. Lord, even in days of old, you supernaturally and miraculously allowed your people to escape. And Lord, we pray today that you would intervene on the behalf of these people and in Myanmar, Father, that you would protect them, watch over them, Lord, that you would do miracles, O God, on their behalf, Father. And we thank you for that. Lord, we pray today, as we hear your word, Lord, that we would hear your voice, not my voice as a pastor, but the voice of God, the voice of the Spirit, speaking to each heart, Lord, individually, that you would speak into our, the innermost parts of our being, that we would leave this place knowing that we've encountered you, the true and the living God, and we thank you for that, Father. 
and that we would respond to you, that we would not harden our heart, that we would yield and submit our wills to yours, Lord, for you love us with an everlasting love. And Father, what you intend for us is for our good and not for our harm. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. God's people said, amen. You may be seated. Author Bob Record writes in his book, Forged by Fire, how God shapes those he loves. As he was writing his book, he actually unexpectedly suffered a severe cervical spinal injury. It was so bad that when they put him into the MRI, they had to significantly sedate him. And it showed significant damage in three major parts in the cervical area. And the orthopedic surgeon's assistant later said, Bob, your neck is a wreck. There's hardly any way to avoid surgery. Because of the swelling of the injured nerve, the only way for relief was to give strong narcotic prescriptions and ice. And then, you know, about 48 hours after the onset of the injury, the doctors estimated he lost about 80% of the strength of his left arm. Three of his fingers in his left hand had lost feeling. Even the slightest movement sent tremendous pain in his body. And to add insult to injury... The physicians told him that he could not be involved in work for the next five weeks and would have to live 24 hours a day with a neck brace around his neck. And as he relates, as he's going through this experience, he was getting a little fidgety. How many know that when you, you, know, when you, you get stopped and you're dead in your tracks and now you can't do anything, you, know, you get a little restless? And so Bob decided to go sit outside and it was kind of one of those cool blustery days and he was sitting there it was not a nice day it was cold but he just couldn't take being in the house he felt cooped up he's sitting on the porch and suddenly this bird lands on a railing and of all things begins to sing that's not how bob felt on that cold rainy day he said i couldn't believe any creature had a reason to sing i wanted to shoot that bird (laughs) but he continued to warble anyways and i had no choice but to listen because i needed assistance to get back in the house Well, the next day I decided it was a lot nicer. It was warm and sunny, so I decided to go back outside. I'm sitting on the porch, and I'm enjoying the sunshine, but my attitude is terrible. I feel sorry for myself. I'm just in a miserable state of frame of mind, and suddenly a bird, I think it was the same bird, showed back up. At least it looked like the same bird, and he was singing again. And I was thinking to myself, where is my shotgun? And then an amazing truth hit me. He said, That bird, if it was the same one, was singing yesterday when the weather was miserable as he was singing today when the weather was great. And all of a sudden, God spoke to me. You know how that that impression, that deep, small, still voice of God in our spirit. He said, you got a choice, Bob. You will either let external circumstances mold your attitude or your attitude will rise above your external circumstances. You have a choice. You choose. Isn't that true? Isn't it amazing that God can wire, you know, a bird that no matter what's happened externally, internally, it's designed to worship. It's designed to sing. It's just designed to do that. And I believe that we, as human beings, we are actually designed by God to be thankful. We're designed by God to express thanksgiving and praise. We were made to do that, folks. But you know what starts happening is, Pretty soon we allow things on the outside to affect how we're going to behave. We allow external things to define us, to define our attitude. I just want you to notice, I have a picture up here. What do you guys see on the slide right now? What do you see? Okay, you see. 
you know, you know what happened the other day? Patty was on YouTube and she's telling me the story. A professor was actually handing out a quiz, just a quick 10-minute quiz. He had all these papers on their desk. They were all turned so that nobody could see what was on the other side. He said, okay, this is a quiz. For the next 10 minutes, I want you to turn your paper over and write everything you see on that paper. And they all turned it over, and there was a, it wasn't a, a yellow oval little thing here that I have on the thing because I couldn't find it. Black dot. And he said all the students wrote on this for 10 minutes when he took all the papers in. He was kind of surprised to find out that every single person, they talked about the black dot. There was not one student that wrote about the blank space around the black dot. There was actually more blank space than there was black dot, but nobody talked about that. And you know, I kind of think about it. What happens in our lives is when we have a problem, what seems to happen is it becomes so intense that you and I begin to focus on the problem. Isn't that true? And pretty soon we start to lose out, and the problem becomes so overwhelming to us that even God gets lost in the picture. You know, we're just so locked into solving the problem or, you know, somehow trying to cope with the issue that we lose sight of all the many blessings that God has brought into our lives. All we can think about is our problem. And some of you have come today, you've got problems. You've got challenges in your life. You're wondering, what am I going to do? And so you came here today going, God, I've got this problem. And God is now going to move your problem to become far smaller in your sight. That's my prayer. And that when you leave here today, you will leave with a deeper sense of gratitude than you've ever had before. You will be filled with a heart of thanksgiving. Because the Bible teaches us that you and I need to learn how to be thankful. You know, I read the psalmist. He says, you know, what? I will bless the Lord when life is good. It doesn't say that. It says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in our mouths. As a matter of fact, Paul, writing to the Thessalonians, said it this way, in everything give thanks. Now, he didn't say for everything. He said in everything. So there were things in our lives that we're not that thankful for, but in those things, it says, in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. So it is God's will today that you and I, as children of God, will be thankful. But many times we're not thankful. We get anxious. We get frustrated. We despair. We're locked into our problems. And so I want to focus our thoughts today on this area. Thanksgiving is not just an annual event, folks. It should be an everyday experience. Paul, writing to the Philippians, says this, rejoice in the Lord I'll say it again, rejoice. We are to be hallelujah people. We are to be thankful people. We are to be people who are filled with thanksgivings and rejoicings. We should be praising God at all times. You go, oh, pastor, you don't know my problems. No, but you don't know my God then. Because God is greater than your problem. You know, if you want to shrink God down to your problem size, that's a problem. But I want you to know the God of the Bible is greater than all of our problems. And we're going to see that as we look at Psalm 65 here today. So let's take a look at three reasons why we ought to express thanksgiving for God's graciousness towards each of our lives. And the first one is simply because of his redemptive work in our lives. Now that redemptive work is really that God saves us and addresses the sin issues in our lives. It's rescuing us from sin. I like to say God's in the restoration business, you know. But he's not working on vehicles. He's not repairing furniture or houses. He's working on human hearts. 
And all of us need a restoration work. All of us, you know, mess up in our lives. All of us make wrong decisions. All of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We need God not only to forgive us, we need God to do a work of restoration in our lives. And so in these first four verses of Psalm 65, we're directed towards this element of thanksgiving. It says there in verse 1, Praise awaits you, O God, in Zion. To you our vows will be fulfilled. O you who hear prayer, to you all men will come. When we were overwhelmed by sins, you forgave our transgressions. Now the psalmist begins by relating the concept of thanksgiving being expressed in praise. Now, it's very fascinating. How many have noticed in your Bible there, there's probably a footnote by the word awaits. Anybody have a footnote there? I have one in my Bible. And I look down, and then it says, what? Yeah, it says, or befits. Or you could say, praise befits, right? Uh, praise befits you, O God, in Zion. Or, I love this. How many of you notice it? You look down and he goes, or the meaning of the Hebrew from this word is uncertain. Anybody look at, everybody, anybody read these footnotes? You know what I love about that? It's uncertain. You know what that really means? Let me tell you what it really means. I now know what it really means. You go, how do you know this stuff, Pastor? Because I actually know a Bible translator that actually translates into English from the, book, from the Hebrew language. He's on the translations committees. And these scholars sit down and start debating the meaning of words. How many think that's kind of fascinating? Because, you know, sometimes a word shows up one time. Everyone's trying to figure out what it means. Okay? This is an old language. So they're arguing amongst themselves, so they put down, we can't come to any sort of conclusion. They, they come up with a number of words. So they, the, the majority voice puts into the translation here, awaits. The minority group puts befits down there, and some of them are saying, yeah, but we're not getting this right at all. So let's just leave it as we're not quite certain of what's going on here. But you know what I found fascinating? You know, Derek Kidner, who's an Old Testament scholar, he says the, uh, this word, the noun that's used here could actually be the word silent. In some translation, it says the word is silent. Praise is silent. You go, what? And Derek Kidner says, literally, praise is silence, or silence is praise. It may be the height of worship, to be fall silent before God in awe at his presence and in submission to his will. How many know that if Jesus showed up right now in all of his glory, we wouldn't just erupt in praise? We'd be so scared spitless, we'd probably be dead quiet. Our faces would be white and we'd be in awe. And that would be a high level of praise. You know? Because some of us, you know, some people, you ever notice, they just don't know when to stop talking. But when you really scare them enough, or they really have a heavy-duty experience, all the words are gone. I mean, that's a high level. I mean, I'm just pointing out to you that there's a meaning here that's pretty powerful. You know, I think what we also don't realize is leading up to Psalm 65, there's actually a sequence of psalms that are primarily laments. Now, how many know what a lament is? A lament is when you're, when you're sorrowing, when you're unhappy. How many like the psalms? I love the psalms. You know why I like them? Because it moves through all of the gamut of human emotion. 
You've got joyous moments and you've got, you know, God, where in the world did you go? You know, you've you got people mad at God. You've got people happy with God. You've got people crying. You've got people laughing. You've got people shouting. You've got people quiet. You've got people sobbing. Don't you love that about the Psalms? And so from Psalm 51 to 64, you have these laments. And it's like these guys are praying and saying, God, where are you? And they're upset. And they're frustrated. We never get upset with God, right? You know, God, how come you're not answering this prayer? Where in the world did God show up? I mean, why doesn't he do something? And we're praying and praying and praying and we're lamenting and we're confessing. And all of a sudden, you know, if you've had a very challenging experience in life where you've really cried out to God and God has finally heard that prayer and answered in an amazing way. You know, sometimes you don't have anything to lament about. Isn't that true? The lament is over. You're no longer crying. You're happy. You've been silenced. Your lament has been silenced. And so Dr. Longman says it this way. The cessation of lament is in itself praise of God, or that silence is an attitude of confident expectation. How many have ever heard that expression? The older saints would use it, praying through. Anybody heard of that expression, praying through? And you know what that really meant? It was simply the idea that you would pray until finally you came to the conclusion that God had not only heard this prayer, but you had the confident expectation that God was now going to answer it. You had a sense in your soul, I don't even have to pray about it anymore, I just know. I just know that it's a done deal. God's going to take care of this. I don't know how he's going to do it. I just know he's going to do it. I got to that point. I believe that's what he's talking about, this confident expectation. I don't feel I need to pray anymore about it. I've committed it to God. Now, you know, I, I would say that there's times in our lives we just keep praying about things. You know, Jesus said we ought always to pray and not to give up. But then there's moments when we just feel like, you know what, I really feel God's answered it. I'm really resting in God's ability to do what he's going to say he's going to do. Real worship is actually a true reflection of our spiritual condition before God. So, you know, we can, we can go through what I call the outward expressions of worship. You know, raising your hands, clapping your hands, shouting, singing, right? We can be silent. Those are all outward expressions. But really, true worship, when God looks down, what is he looking at? He's looking at our condition of our soul, isn't he? He's looking at the essence of our being. He's looking at what's really going on the inside, you know? If we're sitting here thinking about how we're going to pay tomorrow's bill or, you know, how I'm going to punch the lights out of the kid that crossed the street that, you know, beat up on my sister, you know, whatever's going on in our minds. I mean, there's a lot of stuff going on in our heads right now. True worship was when God's got our attention, We're focused in on him. We're really trying to respond to what he has to say in our lives. And I think it begins with a cry of help and mercy. It's the cry of the the brokenhearted. Listen to what it says in verse 3. It says, when we were overwhelmed by sins, you forgave our transgressions. You know, I I think we've kind of gotten away from something very significant in the church. We hardly talk about our sins anymore. You know, isn't that true? We kind of move away from that. You know, it's like, well, we're all forgiven. Well, that's nice that we're forgiven, but I don't know about you, but I still sin once in a while. Maybe you guys are more saintly than I am. I've always, you know, you know, the tough part about being a pastor is you have to have so many experiences, and a lot of them are challenging so that, you know, some people kind of connect to what you're talking about. I woke up really early this morning. I'm going to share where I'm at. I was, I was probably awake at 2.50. I was, you know, laying there, and, you know, I had a measure of anxiety. You know, anxiety, by the way, is actually a sin. How many know that? 
You say, why is anxiety a sin, Pastor? Because you're not really trusting God. But sometimes you just feel anxious. Anybody here ever deal with anxiety besides the pastor? Oh, some of you do. You know, I woke up with anxiety. And I, you know, and I was praying. And, I, and the first thing when I feel anxiety is I start praying. Because the Bible says to do that. My favorite verse when I have anxiety is Philippians 4, 6. It says, be anxious for nothing. Don't you love that? You've got anxiety and the Bible says, don't be anxious. I'm going, yeah, but I am. Well, then the Bible says, well, if you're anxious, you shouldn't be, but here's what you need to do if you are. It says, be anxious for nothing, but with prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known with thanksgiving. So God is saying, listen to me now. I want you to stop focusing in on what's creating the anxiety because you're letting the problem define you. I want you to move beyond that and I want you to focus in on how great I am and my ability to solve that. I want you to begin to thank me for who I am. And then the Bible says something will happen when you practice this. This is very practical stuff. It says, and then the peace of God which passes human understanding, will come upon you. And if you have the peace of God, you no longer have anxiety. How many think that's awesome? So I went from anxiety to peace. Why? Because I started praying with thanksgiving. Amen? Wow, that's great. That's good stuff. You know, why am I saying all of this? Because we rarely come before God and say, Lord, Search me. See if there be any wicked way in me. A couple of weeks ago, I even showed you that you, know, you probably don't know yourself as well as you think you do. And I gave you that psychological thing, but I was really preaching from a psalm saying, show me if there be any wicked way in me. Show me my hidden faults. And we all have them, folks. And then psychologists will come along and say, this is what people see about you that is wrong that you don't see about yourself. And so we, we're, we're whistling in the dark. We're merrily going about thinking, hey, hey, we're okay. And people are going, I wish that person would you know, stop doing this. And then I pointed out you know, the, the ultimate What people can't see about me that's wrong and what I can't see about me that's wrong, but God can see. Wow, is that scary or what? So we're walking along thinking, hey, I got no problems in the world. I'm not committing any sins, but I've discovered one thing about life. The closer I get to God, the more I see that I'm a sinner, but the less I sin. The more I recognize my sinful tendencies, but the less I actually sin. And the further away from God I am, the less I see myself as a sinner, but the more I sin. How many think that's kind of an irony? So the people that are walking around going, hey, I'm okay. Yeah, but they could be so messed up. They're so dead and their hearts are so hard and they don't even know what's going on. I always know when people are tender towards God because they so easily respond to the word of God. They're so easily convicted by things. You know, when we're not easily convicted, it's not because we're doing so good. Sometimes we're not doing so good at all. We got issues in our soul. You know, God sees us at the heart, but aren't you glad that God does something about our condition? You know, when I think of the prodigal, what an amazing story. He finally came to himself. Remember that? He was in the far country. He was actually, you know, eating pig food. Now, this is a good Jewish boy eating pig food. He had gotten a long ways away from where he started. But he remembered his father's house and he said, you know, the hired servants are treated better than I'm being treated in this place. I'm going to go back to my father's house. 
And the Bible said something very profound. While he was yet a long ways off, the father saw him and ran out to him and showed him love and forgiveness. Do you know, when I preach that sermon, I share a whole bunch of stuff in there that's cultural that most of us miss the story, but the father actually takes on the shame of the son. Isn't that an amazing story? It's a powerful story. And isn't that what God did? He took on our shame. He took on the shame and the sin of the world so you and I could be in a right relationship with him. What a powerful thing that is. You know, sin is always irrational and it's destructive, not only against ourselves, but it's against others. But you know, sin is primarily against God and it's a violation of love. But we don't see it that way. You know, we just think, well, I had a spat with, you know, so-and-so. I got upset with so-and-so. But the reality is we're actually sinning against God. We don't even know that. And God is aware of all of these things. But you know, as, when, when, we, when we actually confess our sins, what happens? God forgives us and he cleanses us. And then what is really exciting is that he actually accepts us. God accepts us. Do you know a lot of people have a hard time with this? There's a lot of you sitting in the pews here today. You have a hard time forgiving yourself. You have a hard time forgiving yourself. You know, you did something wrong. You just really have a hard time. You struggle with it. And I want you to know that God is not like you and me. How many say that's good news? That's really good news. Because you and I are a lot slower to forgive. God's a lot more ready to forgive. And not only is God ready to forgive, God's ready to forget about it. And move on. He doesn't, you know, he doesn't bring back the past to haunt us. Are you following this? The Bible says as far as east is from the west, so far as God removed our sins from us. God is saying, look, I'm not going to hold this against you. It doesn't mean God has amnesia. I think he knows what we did. But God never brings it up, never holds it against us because that would be putting down what he accomplished on the cross. And God is so loving and so accepting That God, you know, he is just the most loving person. He goes, man, I'm so happy that you have forsaken that. And I love having you on my team. I love having you as part of my family. I love having you as part of my children. As a matter of fact, in the the book of Ephesians, Paul is praying that they would understand the height, the depth, the length, and the breadth of the love of God. And, you know, we need a revelation of God's love so that we can move forward in our lives in a very profound way. Listen to what he says. I know I didn't power this one up, but in Ephesians chapter one, verse four, it says, for he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. What, what these verses are actually doing is laying out our identity, okay? He goes on to say, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us and the one he loves, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. I'm I'm ahead of myself. Okay, and he lavishes on us with all wisdom and understanding. I want you to just focus in on these words. Listen, he chose us. He loved us. He adopted us. He graced us. He paid the penalty for us. Not because we were worthy or lovable, but because we needed it. And when God accepts you, I love this about God, you are accepted. It's just as if you had never sinned. He treats you like he treats his son. The father will treat you just like he's treating Jesus. And when he looks at you and me, he doesn't see the sin in us. He sees Christ in us. And we are so accepted by him. 
you know, some of us maybe didn't have a loving home, and sometimes we have a hard time feeling like we're really loved and accepted. Others, if you had a very loving home, you totally understand this, how much God could love and accept you, because you've already had that demonstrated to you. But for those of you that didn't, you know, my prayer for you is simply this, that you would really experience God's love, because that will change you more than anything else. It will free you from all the hang-ups and the baggages that you're carrying inside of you. You are going to let go of the sense of being second-class Christian. Listen, there are no second-class Christians. There are only first-class Christians. If you're a Christian today, you're first-class. There is no third and fourth and fifth-class Christians. There's only first-class. You're it. You're his daughter. You're his son. And he, he loves you. And I don't know how to somehow convey this to you any more powerfully than that. I love Jill Briscoe shares a very significant moment in her life in ministry. She was married uh, to a very famous pastor, and they pastored for years. And so Jill went to Croatia, and she was speaking during the conflict there. And there were a lot of refugees. And so she was actually, she said, most of the refugees were women because men were either been killed or they were fighting. And so there was a group of Muslims and Croats and a few Serbs who had, you know, sought shelter in a, in a seminary, in a church building, and they were in this, on a border of a battered Croatian town, and the town was still in danger of sniper fire, and there was a lot of things going on, but they, they were, there was buildings in between that place, and so they seemed to be a relative safety there at the seminary. She said, we worked all day visiting with the refugees, and at night a service was held nearby in this huge church near the seminary, and she said, I was asked to speak. And she said, I, I didn't, what do you say to people who, you know, have fled, been tortured, left everything behind, you know? And you're trying to present the good news about Jesus. So she said, she put aside her notes. She said, God, give me some measure of creativity. And she said, you know what I did? She said, I told them about Jesus who, ha- who as a baby was a refugee. He was hunted by soldiers during the night and his parents had to flee and bring him to Egypt. And they left everything behind. And she said, the moment I said that Jesus was a refugee, things clicked. I immediately had their attention. They could identify with this one who was like them. She said, I went on to tell them about Jesus' life, his ministry, his death, his resurrection, how he hung there naked, and then how he had been stripped and tortured. At the end of the message, I said, all of these things that have happened to you, You who are homeless, you who had to flee, you who had suffered unjustly, but you didn't have a choice. But Jesus did. He left his home in heaven and willingly endured all of the things that you have suffered. How many think that's powerful? That Jesus chose to suffer when he didn't have to do it. You know, nobody wants to choose to suffer, but Jesus did that. Why? Because he loved us. Now, She said, as a matter of fact, she goes, how could I possibly understand what you're going through, she said to them. But Jesus actually can because he's the suffering God. You can give your pain to him. Isn't that amazing? The compassion of God. You know, when we recognize that it is God who chooses us, this is what verse four says in Psalm 65, blessed are those you chose and bring near to live in your courts. Now, I'm not going to get into a disputation about how this works out, God's sovereignty and man's free will. You know, I believe both those ideas are in the Bible. They're held in an amazing creative tension. Actually, I think they both exist. And don't ask me exactly how it all works out. But I will say this. 
Jesus himself said to his disciples, you know, you didn't choose me. I chose you. And the fact that you're here today, God has had his finger on your life. Some of you, you know, you have to ask yourself the question, why am I so fortunate to be born in a country with all of this affluence? And people all over the world want to come to these affluent countries. You could have been born in a little hut in India. I've been there. We're going to go back next month. Trip number 10. Most people live in abject poverty. You know, and these people you know, are taught that there's no mobility beyond what they're experiencing in this life. They're locked in. They're reliving in a religious system that teaches them that they're going to have another life. And maybe if they live a good enough life now, they can have a better life in the life to come. Going through another circle of living on earth another time. But if they don't live up to this level, they may go downwards. And they could end up being one of the animals running loose in India. I mean, you talk about, that's, that's reality. Why were you and I so blessed to be either born here or be able to come here and enjoy what we're experiencing? Why? Why, God, should you choose me? And the answer is because of his grace and goodness. That's all. That's it. It's not because you and I did something special. It's because of God's mercy and goodness. But let me move on to the second reason for being thankful is how God is the creator who sustains our lives. You know, and here, verse five, it says, you answer us with awesome deeds of righteousness, O God, our Savior, the hope of all the ends of the earth and of the farthest seas, who formed the mountains by your power, having armed yourself with strength. You know, you, you understand this is poetry, right? And you know, mountains are symbolic of stability and strength. How many of you, know, you just don't relocate the Rocky Mountains? You know, they'll relocate you, Right? <laughs> They're going to stick around for a while. Then it says, who still the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves, and the turmoil of the nations. Do you know, the ancient people, because when you're you're on the seas, how many know you're not in control? The seas control the boat. The boat doesn't control the seas. You may be able to navigate, but when you're in those big storms, you don't even know if you're going to live or die. Sometimes it's terrifying, you know, Life feels like you're out of control in a major storm at sea. Who stills the roaring of the sea? God does. Isn't this a beautiful imagery? Because I know in the Gospel of Mark, and I preached this a while ago, Jesus was in a boat and there was a storm going on. The fishermen who had been on there all their life were terrified they were going to drown. You know, and many scholars believe it was a satanically inspired storm because many of the ancient peoples really considered that the sea represented absolute chaos. No control, out of control. And yet, who's in control of the chaos? God is. And Jesus stood up in that boat and he said, be still. And immediately the storm silenced. And there was peace. And you know, isn't it amazing that we can have troubles in our lives and Jesus can speak a word into our troubled soul and in that moment he can change the whole environment. He can speak into our soul and say, peace, be still. And all of our anxieties can diminish at that moment. That is so profound to me. As a matter of fact, Dr. Lawman writes about the hope we find in God's power to be in control of the chaos we often create as human beings. He says, just as he stills the roaring seas, so he stills the turmoil of the nations. And as a result, he is the source of all hope and the focus of all worship. Can I just say something? It doesn't matter who wins elections. 
Sometimes, you know, as little creatures down below, we're all politically inclined. You know, we got Albertans uptight with the NDP. We got Albertans uptight with the liberal government. We have Americans uptight with Donald Trump. We have Americans uptight with Hillary Clinton, President Obama. You know, think about who they had in the first century. They had Nero. The guy was insane. You know, I'm serious. They said, submit to those that are an authority over you. Thank you, Lord. The guy's crazy, right? You know, and think about these rulers, Nebuchadnezzar. He wasn't a nice guy. I'm going to tell you that right now. He was a world dictator. You know, we've had Stalin. We've had Hitler. They've come. They've gone. I want you to tell you something today. God's in charge of it all. Can we, st- can we stop sweating it? It don't really matter who's in charge because really God is ultimately in control. We need to get a hold of that. It's not like we divorce ourselves from life and not become responsible, but we don't live in fear, folks. God is still in control. He can still speak into the situations into our lives. And that's the part that I rejoice in. As a matter of fact, you and I are moving towards God's ultimate end. God has a purpose. You know, the Greek word is teleos. And what are we moving towards, Pastor? Let me show you the verse. I really enjoy this. And it's simply this one, Revelation eleven fifteen. It says, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. Hallelujah. We need to be aware of that. We're moving towards that. And there's only two kingdoms. You know, I'm studying right now in the book of Proverbs. There's a path that God has laid before us. And as you and I walk in that path, you know, it says, Thy word is a lamp unto my path, right? The Torah, the law, the word is leaving me a guided pathway so that I can walk successfully through life. But you know who the real light is? It's the law is who? The word is who? It's Jesus. As you and I follow Jesus Christ, he's the one that's guiding us through this path of life and that we will successfully navigate through this life. And then the other pathway is a broad road that leads to destruction. And there's many on that road. And you know, they all make it sound like they're all on a different path. Can I just tell you there's only two kingdoms? There's the kingdom of God and there's the kingdom of Antichrist. And don't be fooled. If you're not walking with Christ... You're on the wrong path. And you need to walk on the right path. You need to be a follower of Jesus. That's the path to a successful life, folks. And you and I get to live in eternity with Jesus. And the kingdoms of this world are going to become the kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let me tell you, we are going to win in the end. We are going to prevail over all the evil in this world. And one day, sin and sickness will no longer be here. There will be no more tears, no more sorrow. Because the kingdom of God will have prevailed completely over the realm of humanity. Let me move on to the third point. I'm running out of time. That's okay. We can skip through a few things here. I had stories. I'm moving along. We'll get done. The gracious provisions for our need. God is the source of our supply. Without his provision, we would perish. We need to hear this. You know, James reminds us, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, who does not change like a shifting shadow. In an agrarian-based society, which the ancient world was primarily agrarian, agricultural-based, okay? You know, listen to what they write. You care for the land. You provide the food. But you know, we live in a technological age. So we actually have this haughty attitude that we can handle things. 
But can I just remind us of something? What good is the cell phone if you have no food? All the technology in the world ain't going to help you. You know, just give me a loaf of bread. You can have the cell phone. I'm hungry. Right? Is this making sense? So we need to become a little more humbler and realize that God is the one that provides. Now, in the ancient world, in the, in the old covenant, God made a covenant with people of Israel. You know what he told them? He said, listen to me now. I'm going to take you to this promised land. There's not being fed by irrigation. I'm going to rain from heaven. If you guys obey what I have to say, I'll send the rains down. I'll water the land. You'll be blessed. You'll have food. You'll have prosperity, right? Didn't he tell them that? Sure he did. He said, but if you guys turn your back on me, worship these false gods and embrace the gods of the lands and all the rest of that nonsense, he said, I'm going to shut the heavens down. There's going to be no rain. You're going to have drought and you guys are going to be starving so that you guys wake up and realize that you've abandoned your covenant with me and humble yourself and ask for forgiveness and repent and get right with me and then I can open the heavens again. How many think this is an interesting psalm? It says they confess their sins in verse three. At the end, what's happening? You see all this bounty. Look what it says here. You cared for the land, you watered it. You enriched it abundantly. The streams of God are filled with water to provide the people with grain for so you have ordained it. You've drenched its furrows and leveled its ridges. You've softened it with showers and blessed its crops. You've crowned the year with your bounty and your carts overflow with abundance. The grasslands of the desert overflow. The hills are clothed with gladness. The meadows are covered with flocks and the valleys are mantled with grain. They shout for joy and sing. Wow. The psalmist is thanking God for restoring fertility in the land after a period of drought whose ultimate cause was the sin of the people. So before giving thanks... The people had to probably lament their condition before God and ask for forgiveness. Oh, I skipped up here. Okay. Isn't that amazing? You're getting a picture of this covenant being played out through the psalmist here. So I'm going to have a stand as we close. Time is up. How many here you can say, you know, Pastor, I have problems? Anybody here have problems? If you don't have any problems, I want to meet you afterwards. I want to check. Do you have a heartbeat? You know? Are you alive? We all got problems, right? Jesus said, in the world, you will have trouble, tribulation, problem. So we all have them. But here's the deal. Yeah, we have a choice. You can shoot the bird. Or you can learn to warble. In other words, you can learn to sing. You can learn to be thankful. You go, why should I be thankful? Are you a child of God? Think about that. You should be thankful. Right? Amen? Is that good? I think it's an awesome thing. That God would invade our lives. That God would choose us. We should be thankful. We should be happy people. Amen? I believe that. What's happened so often in our lives is we get focused on the problem. How many here with heads bowed right now? How many say, you know, Pastor, I came in. I have to confess I'm focusing on the problem. I lost sight a little bit. Yeah, it's okay. Yeah, we're focused on the problem. But you know what? God wants to encourage you today. He's not here to chew you out. He's saying, look, I'm bigger than your problems. How many believe God's bigger than your problems? Raise your hand. You believe God's bigger than your problems. Okay, we should be happy. He can say, peace be still. And all of a sudden, our soul loses its anxiety. 
Isn't that great? Hallelujah. I love this. Are you encouraged? How many say, you know, Pastor, I'm encouraged today. How many are encouraged now? You're, you, you're, in, you're encouraged. You're beginning to say, hey, you know what? God's got this under control right now. I don't have to sweat it. I don't have to worry about it. I don't have to be anxious about it. God is going to take care of my problems. I'm going to cast them on him today. You know what we're going to do today? We're going to lift our hands up. We're going to say, Lord, here's the problems. You know, because I, I live, you know, as a, as a manager, not as an owner. I believe God's in charge. So I could just tell God, hey, this is your problem, not my problem. You know, if we have an issue in the church, I just tell God, your problem. I have a problem. With the, they're your problem. You know, you just tell me what to do. I'll do it. They're your problem, right? If we can't sell a house, Derek, hey, God, your problem to take care of me. I'm your son. Got to feed me, right? I'm your kid. I'm your problem. I'm God's problem. <laughs> You're God's problem. How many like that? I like it. You're his problem. But you've got to remind him. God, I'm your problem. I'm your problem child, Lord. <laughs> I am one of his problem children. I can tell you that right now. That's why I have an active prayer life. God, I'm just reminding you. I'm, I'm your biggest problem down here. Amen? Let's cast our problems to him today. Let's lift our hands and say, Lord, here's the problem. I'm giving them to you today. I'm casting my troubles on you today. I want to walk out of here free as a bird. I want to have a song in my heart. I have made a decision to be thankful no matter what because I'm not going to let my problems define who I am. I'm your son. I'm your daughter. It's your problem, not mine. I'm just going to be happy. I'm going to be happy. Amen. Lord, we cast our cares on you. Because we're convinced, as Peter tells us, you care about us. Lord, help all anxiety flee right now. I pray for the peace of God that passes human understanding to flood our hearts. I pray that joy will come into our lives. I 